invite that you turn your Bibles into John 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew that's in front of you. Or you can cut your Bible on, whichever one you're doing. Last week we looked at uh, this prayer that Jesus prayed. Right before going to the cross, this is in the upper room, and really it's the last teaching time that he has with the disciples. The Bible says in the next chapter of 18 that after saying these things, he went out, crossed the Kidron Valley into a garden where his disciples entered, and he prayed, and he began shedding his blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he surrendered again his will to the Father. And so this is... um, what would the master say before he sees his friends desert him as he goes to the cross and he prays for them? And we find last week that he didn't pray just for them, he prayed for us, for those who would come and believe because of the word of the disciples. We looked at what that meant and how he prayed for us. I'm going to share with you again uh, three other things he prayed for. But interesting how Jesus is the answer to his prayer. How the resurrection, the cross, is the answer to his prayer. It's pretty amazing when you can see an answer to prayer in front of you. I remember um, a number of years ago, I, I guess it's probably 22 years ago, when I came to this realization that this young lady that was in college with me uh, that was about to graduate, that she was an answer to prayer, that, uh, that she was going to be the one that I was going to marry. And I was kind of shared with her my thoughts and feelings and said, I love you, knowing full well what that meant, that when I told her I loved her, it was my intention to say, I want to marry you. That was kind of just something that I'd committed to do, and she had known that. And as we were just sitting there and worshiping together after this, and, and just this realization of this one that's in front of me, uh, beside me, that this is the one that my parents prayed for. My, my parents are believers, and when I was born, they started praying for my future spouse, even at that moment in time. And as I looked at her and said, you're the one that my family's been praying for, then I've been praying for. You are an answer to prayer. And now she's had her birthday this past week, and we're next month celebrating 20 years of marriage, and just to understand what God is doing with that. And that's a small thing in comparison to what you see here in John 17. When Jesus starts praying something, he becomes the answer to that prayer in just 24 hours later. So let's see what he prayed for. John 17 Verse 20, we're going to read verse 20 through 26, but we're going to focus on 24, 25, and 26. And we have a custom of uh, standing as we read this together in honor of this being God's word. If you'll just stand with me, you read silently as I read aloud. Uh, John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You may be seated. So we looked last week, we saw that Jesus was praying for a community that would be greater than the differences. He was actually praying that dignity and honor to, honor would be given to us that would surpass our own faults, that he would share his glory. And he was praying for a love that would astound the world that would happen through the church. We keep on reading. We're going to see that he gives us a few other prayers. The first prayers we see in verse 24 is that for us to be with a glorified Jesus. He prays just 12 hours before the cross for us to be with a glorified Jesus. And so when we see the resurrection, it is a revealing that Jesus is accomplishing that in us. That he is asking that we could be with him when we die. In fact, it was just a little bit before this, in John uh, chapter 14, if you read there that he is uh, describing where he is going. If you flip just, this is within that same conversation, that same night, John 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he talked about it. Now he's praying for it. And just 12 hours later, he's going to make it happen. But uh, how did this happen? Why did Jesus have to die? And why did he have to rise again for us to have this prayer fulfilled? For us to be with a glorified Jesus when we die? Well, Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, if you skip all the way to the end, same author wrote John, writes Revelation, and he gives us a picture of what it looks like at the end. Uh, in fact, if you ever wonder what's, what the future holds for after death, as we see God brings everything to a conclusion, uh, you get a picture of that in Revelation chapter 21. And it's just a glorious picture uh, describing a place without suffering, without sin, Without disease, without death, the tears are wiped away from our eyes. But then, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, this place. Nor anyone who does was detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So it gives us this picture of where Jesus is going to be, but it's a place where there is no sin, where there's nothing unclean clean. You know, 
Have you ever been somewhere really exclusive? Uh, a number of years ago, we, uh, we took a family trip down to uh, Georgia and stopped in on our way to Augusta. And you know what? You know what's at Augusta? That's where the Masters at the Augusta International Course, and um, and you know you you drive around and think, man, this is going to be amazing. You see it all protected with with these massive bushes and, and fencing, and, and you go in, and, and without man, there's, there's the interest. Let's, let's go down, and, and let's go in and just see. And then, of course, there's a gate person that stops you and says, you're just not allowed to come in here. Sorry. Well, well what do you have to do? If you have to ask, then you're not getting in. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can't just be anybody and get into the course. You, you have to have a, a certain stature. And you just, it's not just that you're wealthy. You have to have a certain uh, status uh, for you to get in. I, and, you know, they, it's only what the males come in. And a certain, I don't know if they allowed that. was a controversy, you know, about women coming in. Uh, and so the best I could, could do, I asked around the locals. I went around to the backside of the golf course where there's the driving range and practice range. And I could just talk to someone over the fence. And he said, I tell you what, here's what I can do. Here's a golf ball. <laughs> Thanks. Somebody that played in the Masters used this last week. I was like, oh, cool. Did they sign? Oh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> so I got a golf ball. And I got to the backside of the course and I bought the hat. You know, you had to pay for that. And, and that's the closest I could get in because I just don't have it within me to be there in the golf course. And, here, and that's just how we are with, with a, a, a prestigious golf course. We're talking about the presence of God. You know, this is the Augusta International. That's just nothing in comparison to what Jesus is talking about in the presence of God where there is nothing unclean allowed. You know, we talk about this, and we, often the question comes up and, and says, well, you know, how do you, how do you get to be with, with God in heaven? How, how do you have some assurance to be with, with Jesus when you die? And the most common answer, can anyone guess what the most common answer is? Well, you just be good. Just do the best that you can. And that sounds great. That sounds all-embracing. You know, just anybody can be good. But if you think about it, that is one of the most judgmental, narrow-minded things that we could say. Really? Good? Do you know how hard it is for me to be good? We say that like it's easy to do. Well, just be good. Anyone that says they're good is not honest with themselves. Have you realized what's in our heart? The selfishness that's there to say everything revolves around me and to say that only those that are good comes into this place? That rules me out. And anyone that's honest with themselves, it rules them out. There's got to be a different standard. Please, God, let there be a different standard than goodness. Because we all fell at that point. And I know that's the most common answer, but I don't think we've really thought about that. About how high a standard that is. And how we utterly fell. And really, there is no redemption from that. Because once you're not good, you're not good. You're, you're tainted. You've got selfishness involved. And so Revelation 21 tells us that there's this picture of anything unclean. And that's not really great news. 
Except it has this thing about, except those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're like, well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus is praying that those who are given to him, who know him, he's praying, God, will you allow them to see my glory, to be with me where I am glorified? You know, that's an amazing thing to, to see the glory of Jesus. We talked about this, about the dignity and honor. That's another way of, of saying glory. Let, let the world, let the people see, those who come, see the dignity and honor of Jesus Christ and the way that he had it even since before the world began. You see, even in John chapter 17, just a few verses right before he says this prayer, you see verse 5? He says, he was praying to the Father, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he says, and let those who follow me be there to see it. When Jesus prays this prayer, he's praying the will of the Father. Now, why did Jesus have to die and rise again? Well, you see, the problem is, is our sin makes us separate from God. At the moment we're born and we have sin in our heart, God the Father, because He's holy, must separate us from Himself. But it's not His desire. He wants something different. He wants something better. It's expressed even as Jesus praises. He says, he says I want them to be with me, but the sin has to go. There has to be something to take care of this because God is just and cannot pretend that he, you didn't sin. Have you ever done that where you just said, I forgive them? And we think, well, why can't God just forgive us? Why does there have to be a price? Why can't he just declare us unclean? You see, whenever someone's forgiving someone, there has to be an absorption, someone to absorb the price of that, that consequence. Even if you were to run into my car and I would say, I forgive you for running into my car, I have to be willing to either pay to fix that car or just drive with a dent up car you know either way but i'm absorbing that so jesus says that if for us to be forgiven he has to absorb the cost and so jesus dying the cross is doing that exactly that notice how he's saying my father my father even as he prays in the garden of gethsemane he says my father not my will but yours be done but there's one exception when jesus prays where he doesn't say my father it's when he's on the cross. On the cross, he becomes our sin. And he becomes separated by the Father. And you hear it when he says, my God, my God. It's the only time you see him not saying, my Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this point, Jesus becomes separated so that we can be reconciled. And when Jesus dies on the cross, interesting, you see in John chapter 20, verse 17. Just skip over a couple of pages and you'll see this. John chapter 20, verse 17, the resurrection. Jesus appears to the women first who come to the tomb. Which, by the way, in that day and time, women were not credible witnesses in a court of law. Why do you think the Gospels writers have women being, for a little while, the only witnesses to the resurrection? Because that's what happened. This is not made-up fiction, because you were going to make up fiction in that day and time, you'd write it totally different. But this is what happened. 
And so here they have Mary, and she has this one-on-one with Jesus. And Mary recognized who this is when Jesus says her name. But verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to him, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why do we have the resurrection? Because when Jesus is dying on the cross, we're having him say, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now, because of the resurrection, we see that our sins are taken care of, and Jesus is now able to say once again, my Father and my God. But even more to the point, he doesn't just say, my God and my Father. He says to Mary, good news, he is now your Father. And you're God. You see, in the resurrection, we've got God, Jesus, praying for us to be with a glorified Jesus with him when we die. And it gives us a taste of things to come when we can say, my father, my father, in the here and now. Then we can say, my father, my father, in the days to come beyond our death and there to see a glorified father. We keep on reading. Verse 25. What else does he pray for? He he just lets us know that that we're in a world that doesn't know him. But this is a glory that God has even before the foundation of the world. It's it's not uh, diminishing in any way. It reminds me. So just throw this in again. I'm a UNC fan. All right, just this is a good time to proclaim that. But here's, here's one of the things that happened. I had someone call me before the game, the final game. And they said, Hey, man, you want to go with me to Franklin Street? <laughs> Even before the game. Now, y'all know the game was West Coast. I mean, it was late. I was like, why, why, why do you want to go down to Franklin Street? Man, it's just going to be exciting there. That's where the party's going to happen. You know, that's, that's, where it's at. That's, that's where the glory is going to be demonstrated. He didn't use those words, but that's how we understand it, right? Why did he want to do that? Because... I wasn't there last time they won, and I don't know if they're ever going to win again. I want to be there. I said, I'm sorry. I got a 7 o'clock appointment, and I got a 545 workout time. Uh, you guys go on. That's not me. Why do we want to do that? Because there's something in rejoicing and glory and dignity and honor that we want to be a part of. And I'm going to just say to you, that has nothing in comparison to what will be. And I would just say to you, Will you be there? Do you want to be there when the greatest of glory is going to be revealed? When the greatest of dignity and honor is going to be demonstrated? When the most unique, most beautiful, most holy, most brilliant, most powerful, most loving one is going to be there on demonstration? Jesus is saying, he's calling you up and he's saying, I don't want you on Franklin Street. I want you on my streets. I'm inviting you to be there. And the resurrection makes it happen. We keep, keep on reading a verse uh, going on down to verse uh, 25. Oh, righteous Father. Another prayer. Oh, righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I believe that within this he's stating a, a fact that he's making happen, but it is a prayer still for us. He's praying, and the resurrection is an answer to prayer, that we would know God. For us to know God. That's the second prayer right here. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, 
He makes that happen for us to know Him. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, He said, I am forsaken by God. But He is forsaken by God so that we can be embraced by God the Father. Isn't that beautiful to know that we don't have to live alone? Now, what does this mean for us to know God? Jesus defined that just previously in John 17, verse 3. What is this to know God? This is eternal life. You ever know what eternal life is? This is it. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is living before God. You responding to the eternal one. And him responding back to you. You take a flower. Right now, these are living flowers. They're still in the ground. They're responding to light and water. Things that they need. Oxygen. Carbon dioxide. But if we were to cut one, it might look pretty for a little while. But for all practical purposes, it's dead. Why? Because it no longer responds. It's been separated from the nutrients of the dirt and the light. It's been separated from it, and so it's just going to fade away. We are born as cut flowers, and it's just a matter of time. But when Jesus comes in and gives us light, we, the, the terminology is being born again. What he is doing is he gives us spiritual roots now that we're connected to the eternal God who lives forever. And that means now that we're connected to him, we can respond to the nutrients of our soul, of our life, and we will live forever because now we're connected to God the Father and there's a response to him and from him going back and forth. We are now living plants that will live forever. So John, uh, Jesus describes this, says, this is eternal life, that you know him and Jesus Christ whom he was sent, whom have sent, he has sent. And so he's saying now, he's praying, Lord, I pray that they will know you. The world doesn't know you. In other words, just being born into this world doesn't make you alive to God. Just because you're born doesn't mean you're alive to God. In fact, the default position is you don't know God. It doesn't matter who you're born to, what family you're born in, what church you go to, what knowledge you have, how good moral person you might be. We are born in a natural default position of cut from God. The world does not know God. In fact, we'll hate God. In fact, as I think about last Sunday when folks were gathering in Egypt, there was a, a site of bombing. I wonder how many people are gathering in places around the world thinking, I'm going to go with thinking that we're going to be a target because we're believers in a place where people hate them. Why does that happen in Egypt and other places around the world? Because the world doesn't know God. There has to be a spiritual transformation that takes place through the resurrection. And so we have exactly that when Jesus says, Now, this is not my father alone, but your father. We've been embraced. So let me ask you, do you know God? And does God know you? Is that relationship there where you're responding to him? We keep on reading. Verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, 
Let me ask you that question. How is Jesus going to do that if he's going to die in 12 hours? I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. He can do that because of the death and resurrection. Because with the resurrection, Jesus comes back, and now the Spirit of Jesus is able to come. The Spirit of God is now there and will continue to make known something. What will he continue to make known? The name of God. And when we talk about the name of God, we're talking about the character of God, the power of God. It's not just say, okay, now I know Yahweh, or now I know Jesus. It is to say, no, you know his character, you know his power. Uh, Here's the thing, is that Jesus is connecting the dots that the God of the Old Testament, the God that gives justice and gives the law and gives judgment, is also the God of the New Testament. They're not two separate entities. They are the same. The God who judges is the God who loves and gives his life for us. And so we're made known. Why is it important that we have the name of God, the character and the power of God known to us? Because it's in knowing how great, how powerful God is that we get to know something else. You see that in verse 26? I will continue to make it known that, in other words, this is the purpose, that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what he's praying for is that we will be saturated with a powerful love. To be saturated with a powerful love. You see, it's one thing for us to say, well, so-and-so loves me. But when you see someone of renown, someone of power that knows us intimately and yet still loves us, then that speaks to the greatness of that love. Why did Jesus die and rise again? It is to show that the love of God satisfied his anger for my sin. If Jesus never rose again from the dead, then he was just someone that was, that was nice. He died. In fact, Jesus said, in the same time, no greater love hath anyone than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. So his cross demonstrated his love, but the resurrection showed that his love was victorious. People die for others. People die for others. But to rise again shows that their life And love is greater than sin and death. The resurrection is critical because it shows this is greater than our sin. And now it's something that I can live in. In fact, when we see this phrase that I continue to make it known that love with which you have loved me may be in them, it could be in them or it could easily grammatically could also be among them. Translators wasn't sure which one to go with. It could be either I in them or I among them. Either way, it communicates something effective. And then he says, I in them, I in them, or I among them. What I want you to note is it's plural. A lot of times we like to look at this as just singular. Jesus is in me. His love is in me. Because it, well, it feeds right into America, the individualistic society. Jesus died for me. But look. It's not just that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you to create a people, a body. Notice the word here, it says, I in them, plural. My love in them, our love among them. So when Jesus is dying on the cross and rising again, what he's praying for is that there would be a group of people that would be saturated with love and his presence. 
that would make a difference, as we see just a few verses, that would astound the world. That's what matters on the resurrection. And so Jesus rises again. And the people are amazed and and they come bonding to him. The ones that knew him and they start gathering. They learn from him and they spend 40 days with Jesus. And then he ascends to be with the Father. And he says, wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send to the Father. But when I get to the Father, God's going to exalt me under the right hand of the Father. And I'm going to give to you our spirit. The Spirit of God, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit of God comes among you. Then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, power, uh, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1.8. Then wait on that. Why is it important? Because the church to be a church, a body to be a body, there must be the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love. And then with that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, they can be witnesses. Jesus died and rose again to create within Nightdale, Raleigh area, a people that are bonded together by the life of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the great fame and glory and dignity of Jesus Christ, that that would bring them more in common with any differences that this world has, that the world that lives on differences, that world that lives on merit, are you good enough? Are you wealthy enough? Are you strong enough? Are you uh, intelligent enough? The world that lives on merit, that they would see that there is a body of people that are bonded not by merit, but bonded by the grace of Jesus Christ and brings them together. And the world says, this is different. Raleigh says, what's this? They don't live for money? They don't make judgments based on money? That's bizarre. What's behind that? What is behind that as a resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, I, um, my, mo- my favorite dessert is something called sugar bread. Moravian sugar bread. Old Salem, you can get it in the bakery there. Just yeast, sourdough, butter, brown sugar, all on top, just caked into it, you know. It's not good for you, but, you know, it tastes good. Um, it's rare to get it because it's not easy to make. But if I ever know that we have it, it changes me. It does. It changes how I eat. I mean, I know it's there. I can smell it. I saw it in the, in the kitchen. And it doesn't really matter what we have for the, for the meal. It could be steak. It could be brisket. I'm, I'm ruining right now. I, I know. Y'all all ready for lunch right now. Uh, mashed potatoes. Uh, you got your green beans, you got your salads, it, it could be, you know, it doesn't really matter how good it is. I'm reserving my appetite. It's changed me. I might normally love to eat this stuff. I mean, brisket's one of my favorite meats. And I might, uh, you know, I might normally just do it, but now I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to fully indulge because I've got, I've got desires for something else. And it's practicing some restraint in me and it's changing how I eat and I and then when that moment comes and it's brought there and it's warm and soft and fork goes in and just cushions and and depresses a little bit and <sighs> and then you eat it and it just kind of melts in your mouth like oh this is great it, it changes me 
Have you ever thought of why God gave you taste buds? Aren't you glad he did? I thank God he gave me taste buds. I, I think God's glory can be revealed in taste buds. He gave us every sense for us to enjoy his glory. Some of it is expressed in sugar bread. All right? But that's just small and significant to teach us a lesson. God is preparing something for us. In his presence. In his glory. That if you could just see. Just a small glimpse of the glory and beauty magnificence the love the power of god the father and god the jesus the son if you could just see it there in the in the kitchen it would just change how we indulge our desires in the here and now that we would say you know what my life isn't lived for such things as what we see here on this earth i've got a heart i've got eyes i've got a desire that is beyond these things that will be by the grace of god revealed and the resurrection is a picture of some of what is to come why do i say this well the bible says first john chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 behold what manner of the love the father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And henceforth we do not know what we shall be, but this we do know. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And if anyone has this hope in him, he purifies himself just as he is pure. What does that tell me? Not only will I see the glory of Jesus Christ, I will become like Jesus. I will be a part of the glory of Christ. And that hope, that desire is, is now driving me. I have a hope that is beyond, that I don't want to mess up the hope with eating just leaves that this world may give. Scripture says also something similar in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, gives us again a picture. We all, with unveiled face, behold, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. One of the things that Jesus is praying for Will you let these people see a little bit of my glory? Will you let them know me? Let them be where I am. And let this love saturate their heart. That, that this will be a group of people where they have the love of Christ among them. And they have me among them. That they can see, maybe in the church, maybe just a little bit of what is to come. And will us as a church be a little bit of what is to come? To say, let not the things of this world be the driving force of our life. We are made for grander, glorious things than just the things of this world. Let our appetites be drawn to a heavenly court. And what I love about Easter is this vision of God, this dream of God that he has invades history, time, and place. I mean, outside the Bible... You can look at historical records, and you cannot deny it is a historical fact that a man named Jesus lived. And it is a historical fact that upon his death, a movement started among the most unlikeliest group of people, and specific people of that, 
Jews who have always said that there is no God but, but, uh, but Yahweh. There's, there's no one else. They have historically been that. And yet they're the ones that says Jesus is God. Done among fishermen and uneducated people who have at times had a hard time being loyal. But now is among these people upon pains of death uh, that they start this movement. That is a historical fact. It just is. I'm sorry you may not like it, but it's fact, historical fact, without even reading the Bible. And you got to deal with that and do something with that. I would just argue with you that the most logical explanation for these historical facts is that Jesus Christ not only died, but he rose again on the dead to create such a movement. And if that is true, if that is true, then there is a future that pales anything you have ever seen, ever known. And that if you want to enjoy life as God intended, that you would learn to love Him, know Him, and let God change your desires for more glorious things. And that is living, as Jesus called it. This is eternal life. And the great news about that is it doesn't stop when your heart stops. That's the resurrection. If you'd like to know Jesus as your saving Lord, these are ones that have been moved by God and they respond to the knowledge of Jesus Christ by saying, I believe it. I depend on it. I trust in it. And I want to make this Jesus my treasure the best I know how. I'm going to invite us all to pray where we express that before the Father. Some of you have prayed this before. It's good to say it again. Just in your own heart, perhaps maybe this is your first time. I encourage you to pray this. To express your heart before God if it does express your heart. 